invite you to open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 26, this Wednesday night of Passion Week. What an exciting night it is. As we really come and uh, I pray that this week that it would not just be the same mundane as you would maybe go through the motions and, and go through work and, and come to church, but that you would really remember and pause for a minute, right, and really think about what Easter is about, what Passion Week is about, what the resurrection means to you. And I pray that maybe in your own devotional time, if you have a notebook that you like taking notes and jotting down what the Lord speaks to you, that you would take some time this week and write down what does the resurrection mean to you. What does the resurrection mean to you? Because what the resurrection means to you will also determine exactly how you live your life. And I think sometimes we don't appreciate that, the resurrection, the power of the resurrection. You see, Jesus, we know that He's going to go to the cross as we celebrate it on Friday and that on Easter we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. But before He went to the cross and then before He went to the, the tomb and the empty tomb that we know it as, He stopped and He made a very important stop. <laughs> have you ever been on a, maybe on a trip and, and you have to make a very important stop on the way? Well, Jesus was going to the cross. Now, he was in Jerusalem. Now, it's past Palm Sunday. The king is coming. They sang Hosanna. He rode with the donkey in now, and he's ready to go. He's going to go now to the cross. He knows that the time is now. But he, before he goes to the cross, he has to make a very important stop. And he makes it at the Garden of Gethsemane. Isn't it amazing how it was at a garden in Genesis that fellowship between man and God was broken at a garden. But then it was at the garden again now, a different garden, the garden of Gethsemane, where fellowship with God began to be restored because of what Jesus was about to do. You see, what does Jesus do at this garden? He goes strictly there for the necessity of prayer, of prayer. You know why he was able to do what God called him to do, what the Father called him to do? Because of prayer. That was now what motivated him and what gave him now the ability to say, not my will, but your will be done. You know how you can say not my will, but your will be done? You have the strength to say that. And you have the strength to live that. You have the courage to obey that through the power of the Holy Spirit when you're spending time in prayer. We've said it before, your vision it's only as big as your prayer closet. You have a small vision, then maybe you have a small prayer closet, a small prayer time. Why? Because vision is birth in prayer. And the best preparation that me and that you will have to spiritual warfare in your life, the, the, what's going to prepare you the most for spiritual warfare is on how much you prayed or how much you didn't pray. You see, his vision, God, the vision of Jesus Christ here, his vision was God's will. Why was his vision God's will? Because he was in prayer. He was in prayer. And prayer keeps you in the will of God. Prayer keeps you in the will of God. When you're not praying, it's going to be easier for you to deviate out of the will of God. But prayer keeps you in the will of God. You see, the word Gethsemane means olive press. The olive press. You see, that's where they would get, it was now trees of olives, and they would grab these olives from the trees, and they would crush them, or press them together, crush them, and break them, and press them together, and it would produce oil from these olives, as we know of as olive oil. This was the very same olive oil that was used to anoint people. This olive oil from Gethsemane, or from these olive trees. And what's interesting about this is that if you wanted oil, you needed to crush the olive. And isn't that what God does sometimes so that He can produce the anointing in your life? He comes and He crushes you in that situation. He breaks you to produce now anointing. It is brokenness that now produces anointing. And some of the most special times of your life are when you're broken. When you're broken. You know what's interesting about these olives is that the value and the worth of the olive was not measured before when it was whole, but its worth and its value of these olives at Gethsemane was measured after it had been crushed 
because it produced oil. And how much more effective are we after we've been crushed? How much more now devoted are we after we have been crushed? Because it produces oil. It produces anointing now. I really pray that this week, if maybe some of us are holding on to something very heavy in our hearts, or maybe it's hardness of heart that we're carrying, that we would say, Lord, I relinquish the hardness of heart this week because I no longer want to carry that with me. The Bible speaks clearly. It says, cast your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. Christ and the Lord through His Word is, is calling us to cast our cares, not to carry our cares. It isn't until you come to Gethsemane that you can cast the cares and you no longer have to carry them. Gethsemane is where God turns pressure into power because of anointing. And maybe today you're facing pressure at work, pressure at home, pressure in your own mind of anxiety, of discouragement, of depression, because of whatever it would be. Gethsemane is where God turns pressure into power through the Holy Spirit. And maybe you're saying, well, I feel so much pressure. Go into Gethsemane, run straight into Gethsemane today and say, Lord, here I am, break me because I don't want to walk around heavy. Your, your word says that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And I want to be crushed. I pray that today we would be crushed by the Holy Spirit at Gethsemane because that's where God turns pressure into power. That's where your problems turn into petitions. That's where the Lord is able to answer you. Jesus went into prayer here because it was one of the most difficult times of His life. And now He's facing hardship. And some of the now times of our lives were the most hardest we have to run to Gethsemane. It's interesting when you read even Psalms 23, when you think about our shepherd, where does He lead us now? He leads us sometimes into valleys. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You know where, what's special about the valley? What's special about the valley is that sometimes in the valley is where you find now streams of water and the cleanest water in that valley. And the valley is sometimes where there are the greenest pastures and the healthiest place for the sheep. <laughs> and sometimes we ask the Lord, Lord, take me out of the valley. He said, no, I took you there for a reason. And I want to meet you there in that valley. You want to win the battle today? Then go into Gethsemane. And it's going to start with prayer. Here, now, Jesus is about to go in to a battle. And it's going to be in prayer. It says, Matthew 20 here. Matthew 26, verse now 35. As we see here, Peter, now talking to Christ Jesus, and he's telling Peter now, we're going to study even his life, and Peter's trajectory of his ministry in his life, where Peter impulsively says this. And in verse 35, Peter said, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples, Even if I have to die, I'm not going to deny you, Lord. I'll die for you, but I'm not going to deny you, Lord. Isn't that us sometimes? Lord, I will die for you, but we can't live for Him. What makes you think that we can die for Christ if we can't live for Christ? Here Peter is speaking emotionally, and he says this. Now Jesus here came to them, came with them to a place called Gethsemane, the olive press. The place of prayer, the place of anointing, the place where the Holy Spirit now is going to minister to Christ. And he said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. Sit here. I want, I'm going to go over there and pray. He was accustomed going to there. And this is the cost now of what's going to take him to the cross. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. He took Peter, James, and John. And he took them now a little further. And then he himself began to be deeply distressed and very sorrowful. Isn't it interesting that every time that Jesus was alone with Peter, James, and John, somehow Jesus led them into prayer together, that inner circle. Somehow he, he surrounded these three men always with prayer. But he's now preparing himself alone to have communion with the Father, and he wants to be alone now because he's sorrowful, it says here, and deeply distressed and, and that's what where we have to go if you're sorrowful if you're deeply distressed you know where you have to go straight into Gethsemane 
Lord, here I am in the place of prayer, at the garden of prayer, at the prayer closet. And what does the Lord call the disciples to do? Stay here and pray with me. He wants now them to support him through prayer. And he began to be sorrowful and he wanted them to stay awake. Here they are with Christ in the school of prayer. And it says in verse 38, Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. You know what he's telling them? I want you to stay here and I want you to stay awake. I want you to be praying instead of sleeping. Has Christ ever called you and maybe touched you in, in your heart, your mind somehow? And saying, I want you to stay up with me today. I want you to pray with me. I want you to watch. I want you to be vigilant. Stay awake. He's giving them here in this very verse 38 an invitation to a prayer meeting. Isn't this amazing? He's inviting them to pray. I'm going to invite you now to pray with Christ. But now it says that he was deeply sorrowful and deeply distressed. And you have to wonder why the Son of Man or God is deeply distressed now. And you have to understand that, that not only is he agonizing, not only he's sorrowful, but, but think about the anxiety levels that have to take place in the life of Jesus, knowing the punishment that he's about to experience. A lot of times we say, well, the sin was transferred over to Jesus. You know, Jesus was, was perfect. He was sinless his entire life here. It wasn't sin that was transferred unto Jesus. It was not that. It was judgment of our sins that was transferred unto Jesus. It was the punishment of our sins that was transferred unto Jesus. Have you ever known that you're in trouble maybe and you start to feel anxiety? Have you ever felt like maybe you're driving in those red lights and red and blue lights stop you and you're like, oh man, you start to feel anxiety hoping that you're going to get a pass? Well, just imagine the judgment of the entire sins of the world, both past, present, and future. He's going to have to pay that price. He's about to pay the price, a heavy price. He's about to pay a price that we could not pay ourselves. And he's going to, for the first time in eternity, the Father and the Son are going to be separated because the Father cannot experience or not, cannot be in the presence of the judgment of sin upon the Son. And he's about to experience now the punishment of all humanity, that burden that will go now upon Jesus. Look at the anxiety levels. In fact, in Luke chapter 22, verse 44, it says that he was in agony. And he started to, to sweat, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. It was a bloody sweat. His body had now come into a shock where it was producing a sweat, a blood-like type of sweat here. You see, in 2 Corinthians, it tells us that, that he, the Father, made him who knew no sin become sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You know what that means? It means that Jesus understood and at the cross what took place is that, that Jesus took our judgment. He took our judgment, but He gave us His righteousness. What an exchange. Think about that. Jesus went on the cross and He says, you know what? I'm going to take your judgment and I'm going to give you my righteousness so that you can be right with God because I love you that much. We're going to switch places. Jesus on the cross switched places with you. That's the entire truth of justification. You know what justification means? Is it means that our sins were on Jesus, the judgment, and His righteousness was on us. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He said, let's switch places right now on the cross from past, present, and future. And He understood now what was about to happen. He was going to break fellowship with the Father right now. And it says in verse 39, and He went a little farther. Are you willing to go a little farther in your prayer life? Are you willing to go a little farther when it comes to staying awake? When it comes to Gethsemane, are you willing to go deep into Gethsemane? Or do you want to just stay in the outskirts of the prayer closet when God's called you to go in a little farther? Sometimes I think when it comes to prayer or the prayer meetings or the prayer vigil, it takes for us to go a little farther to see God move. Ask yourself, well, I've been wanting God to do a work in my life. I want God to do a revival in my family. It takes for you to go a little farther in Gethsemane so that you can see that revival. I was reading a book today, and A.W. Tozer says, Revivals are born after midnight with the people that are willing to go a little farther. You see, 
Revivals are born after midnight. Have you ever been there after midnight going a little farther to pray and have communion with the Father? And instead of that, Jesus was going to fall on his face, a demonstration in the position of his heart. He was falling on his face. He was falling prostrate because he needed the Father. He didn't need another person in Gollum. He didn't need a text. He didn't need something else. He didn't need someone to give him all the attention. He needed the Father. He needed prayer. That's what he needed. He didn't need the validation, a pat on the back, it's going to be okay. He didn't need to try to prove himself at that time. He was deeply distressed, and he was sorrowful, and he knew that the only thing that he could have that would quench now that pain was prayer. That's where you take your pain into prayer. You don't try to get a, a, a feel-good quote to, to fix your pain. You don't try to get the validation of this world to make you feel better. You go into Gethsemane so that you can feel better. And it says here, now look what he says. He goes a little farther, and then he fell on his face. The best men and women that have done great things for Christ are those that have spent time on their face. Because before you can stand on your feet, you have to learn how to be on your knees. And look what Jesus does here. And he prayed, saying. Look how he prays, saying. This is, this is amazing what he's praying. Oh, my father. He didn't say my father. He said, oh, my father. This is anguish. This is agony. This is pain. And the voice of Jesus sweating drops of blood. Can you imagine that? I, I think about how did Jesus feel when it was time that Judas Iscariot came with the Roman soldiers and he was there at the Garden of Gethsemane. He starts to hear the shackles hit one another and the footsteps getting closer and closer and closer and closer. Man, that's pain. That's agony right there. But he said, oh, my father, if it is possible, he was looking here for another way. If it is possible, humanly speaking, looking into eternity as well, let this cup pass from me. And the cup was not the cup of suffering. The cup was a cup of judgment. That cup that he's talking about, let this cup pass from me, he's talking about let this cup that's filled with judgment pass from me. I don't want to have to drink a cup of judgment. I don't want to have to inherit judgment. If there's another way that I can do this, if this can be done another way, he's saying here, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me of judgment. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I want you to underline there, not as I will, but as you will. Because Jesus here is fully willing to drink the cup of judgment for you and for me. Not because he was so excited about it, because he knew that was the only way he can do it, that he can get this accomplished. And he's saying, not my will, but your will. In prayer, that's what starts to shift. Outside of prayer, you say my will. Inside of prayer, you say his will. And that's how you know someone's life is in prayer. When they, they shift from my will to God's will. God's here, Jesus Christ's prayer to the Father God now is centered around the will of God. It's centered around submission. It's centered around sacrifice. It's centered around selflessness. The entire Gethsemane now was filled with the selflessness, the aroma of sacrifice, the aroma of God's will. Let your Gethsemane, your prayer closet be filled with God's will, not your will. Because this is when your heart starts to be crushed. And guess what happens right here now? You don't carry that heavy heart out of prayer. When you go into prayer, it's not so you can carry a heavy heart in and leave with a heavy heart out. It's so you can say, Lord, your will and break me. This was necessary that the Son here be sacrificed as the perfect Lamb of God for the forgiveness and for our salvation. So what does Jesus do? He's going to align His prayer with the will of the Father. He doesn't have his prayer one way and the will of the Father another way. He said, I'm going to take my prayer and align it to the will of the Father. You know what this did when he aligned his prayer to the will of the Father? It taught us that victory is won. Victory at the cross was not won at the cross. It was already won at Gethsemane when he said, not my will, but your will be done. What does this teach us? That the victories and the battles that me and you will face are not won when we get there. They're won way before we got to those battles. They're won when we stepped into Gethsemane and we said, Lord, not our will, but your will be done. The victory starts there. 
The victory starts when you go into Gethsemane and you stay on your face and say, Lord, it's not my will, it's what you want. That's when the victory starts. Sometimes we want to start to get all the pieces together in the midst of the battle, and that's, and that's what we fail. See, the, the success in our battles are fought on our knees. The success in our battles are fought on our knees, and it says in verse 40, Then he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, This is amazing. You have to, I mean, I've read this many times, and I've always missed this part. <laughs> and it got to me yesterday. Because it shows the frustration of Jesus. How many times has Jesus wanted to have fellowship with you and he found you sleeping? How many times did he say, you know, I want you to go a little farther and he saw you sleeping? He goes here and you see frustration in the voice of Christ now. Because he doesn't say, could you not watch me one hour? He says, what? <laughs> did you see the exclamation point after what? Have you ever been in somewhere, God has stepped into a room and, I mean, it's happened to me lately where I walk into a room and I see my son just destroyed the room. And the first thing you think of is like, what? <laughs> Jesus, the father, he went to Peter and James and John and he goes, what? Could you not stay up with me one hour? Could you not stay awake with me one hour? He found them sleeping when they should have been praying. And, and this is amazing because he gives them a warning now. Watch and pray. Here it says, comma. Watch and pray. Watch means stay awake and pray. Stay vigilant and wait. Stay alert and pray. Don't be dozing off. Stay alert and pray. And if it means that you have to pray with your eyes open, if it means that you have to, to pray with, with really a list of things jotted down because you want to focus in your time of prayer, and Lord, I want to have all these things prepared so that when I go pray, I'm praying and I'm focused on what I'm about to pray. I have my Bible open. I have the verses highlighted. Maybe you have the notebook with a list of things because I want to stay awake and I want to pray. And he says, watch and pray. Lest you enter into temptation. You're either going to enter into Gethsemane or you're going to enter into temptation. You pick which one you want to enter. And it's the times where we least enter Gethsemane that we most enter temptation. And in fact, that's why we enter temptation. Because we're not in Gethsemane. He said, I want you to pray so that you don't enter into temptation. You don't enter into temptation. And then he tells the spirit indeed is, indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Oh, the spirit is willing. I need to read my Bible. The spirit is I want to read it, except my flesh wants to go to sleep. <laughs> I want to pray, but I'm tired. I want to go to church, but it's, a, you know, it, it's tough today. I want to go ahead and serve the Lord, but I can't give up my time. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You see, what is he, why is he telling them temptation and prayer? Because now prayer is really where you find spiritual strength to overcome temptation. That's where you get the strength to overcome temptation. And he's telling them, pray so that you can overcome the temptation now. And here he's saying, you know what? You're going to give in to the weakness of your flesh if you neglect prayer. And I'll tell you that today too, for all of us, myself included, we will give in to the weaknesses of our flesh if we neglect prayer, if we divorce ourselves from Gethsemane. Your greatest weapon to resist temptation, to resist temptation is prayer because the flesh is weak. In fact, when you feel the flesh being weak, start praying right there on the spot. I'm being tempted, Lord. I'm being tempted right now. I don't want to enter into temptation. So instead of entering into temptation, I'm going to enter into Gethsemane right here where I'm at. And I'm going to start praying. Because I'm going to prepare for this spiritual warfare. Jesus was preparing for the spiritual warfare that was going to take place. He was preparing for the entire oppression of the enemy upon his shoulders on the cross. Jesus was preparing himself to actually carry the cross. And he prayed. He prayed so that he can carry the cross. Guys, should we not pray so that we can carry our cross? You cannot carry the cross if you haven't prayed for strength to pick up the cross to then carry it. You need strength to pick up the cross. Because the cross is not light. The cross is heavy. And you would think, oh, you know what, well, that, that sounds kind of intimidating and scary. No, well, the cross is heavy. It was, it's costly. And it requires for you to pray. 
And it says, and again a second time he went away and he prayed the same prayer. Oh my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Second time, your will be done. Whose will do you want to do today? Do you want to drink the cup that is catered to you or the cup of God's will for you? What cup do you want to deal with? Lord, this is the cup that you've given me, then your will be done. And if this is the cup you gave me, then I'm going to pray that you give me strength to partake of this cup. That's the only way that you're able to have strength to go through the seasons in life is through prayer. There's no other way. Now he's saying, all right, if there's another way, Lord, but not my will, your will be done. It's your will be done always. It's your will be done, God. It's not about my will. It's not about self-promotion. Here, it's all about selflessness. It's all about sacrifice here. You think Jesus was not trying to, to impress people here. He wasn't, trying to, he wasn't about the crowds. This is Jesus being real now. He's saying, your will be done. And he came and he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. You see, you know why they were asleep? Because their eyes were heavy. And he found them sleeping. And, and just in that manner, sometimes our trials are heavy. Sometimes our day is heavy. Sometimes the situation at home is heavy. And therefore, we find that a reason not to pray. And therefore, we find that a reason why we cannot pray. But all more of the reason when you find yourself in a heavy situation, it gives you more of a reason and a choice to make, a decision to make, that you must be praying. And he prayed again here in verse 44, and he left them again, and he went away again. Here he left the three disciples that he loved. He left them and he went away. What is Jesus doing? He's having a little personal retreat here. He's having a personal retreat. He left them and he went away. Jesus is teaching us that we ought to leave and go away and spend time now because we want to choose victory. And the only way we choose victory is if we choose prayer. You can't choose victory and say, I'm not choosing prayer. You have to do it. The endurance of your faith is always built in prayer, in consistent prayer. That's where you get endurance for your faith. That's where you learn that the surrender is the cost of your obedience. And he's learning here, I'm just surrendering more. You know what Jesus is doing at Gethsemane as he's crying and he's sweating blood, drops of blood? You know what he's doing? You know what's happening here? Emptiness. Emptiness. He's emptying himself to the will of the Father. He's emptying self and now he's praying himself out and the Father's will in. That's what happens in prayer. You empty yourself and you get filled with God's will. That's what's happening right here. He's emptying himself and the will of the Father is, is now prevailing. Then he came to the disciples and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The time is so important here. And the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Are you still now sleeping and resting? Here is the hour. You know what Jesus was doing? He knew the hour of testing was going to come. He wasn't blind. He knew there's a test that's about to happen. And I need to prepare Peter, James, and John for the test. Because I'm going to be tested and they're going to be tested with me. You know, it's not about if you'll get tested, but it's about when you get tested. But are you preparing for that test? Are you studying for that test? Are you staying awake for that test? He said the hour for the test is now. It's time to take the test now, God, boys. Let's get up and take the test. You know what he was doing? He was studying for the test by communion with the Father. This is so amazing here because he goes on and he says, Are you still sleeping? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man, Christ, is about to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. And you see now the betrayer now coming. Rise now, rise, and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Rise. Rise from where? Rise from there, sleeping. But he had been on his knees praying. Jesus could rise because he had a bit on his knees praying. I think that it's very important that we know as Christian men and women that if you don't want to keep falling in life, then just spend time on your knees and you won't fall. It's impossible to fall in that position when you're on your knees. He's saying, let's be going. Let's be going. My betrayer's at hand. You know what he's saying? I, and I love this because he's let's be going. He's not saying, here's the test. I'm going to run away. He's saying, all right, the test is here. Let me step into the test now. 
Let me step into God's will now. I'm not going to shy away from God's will. Let me step into now the judgment, the cup that has been now handed over to me. Let me step into the sacrifice. Let me step into the cross. I'm not stepping away from the cross and trying to still know that that's what I'm going about to do. The cross is before me. Let me step towards the cross, not away from the cross. This is amazing. He's running towards the cross now. Something that's going to agonize him, himself. The separation of the Father. Think about that. He's taking steps towards now the betrayer. Towards now the enemy. The accusers. He's taking steps towards the enemy. He's not turning his back on the enemy. He's taking steps towards the enemy because he has been praying. When you pray, you know what it does? It lets you look at the enemy straight in the face and say, I'm ready for prayer. Here, you know what? Enemy, you, got, you can come at me with whatever you want because I've been praying I've been on my knees here. Come at me now. I've been praying here. Jesus said, let's go. The betrayer is here. He's ready to turn himself in. Understand, nobody took Jesus. He turned himself in. He turned himself in for you and for me. He surrendered himself. And, and think about what happens here. He says, and while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve of the great multitude, it says here, with swords and clubs, says, with the twelve of great multitude, with swords and clubs came with the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. This is amazing. Verse 48 says, whoever I kiss, whoever I kiss, I want you to go now, and I want you to seize him. That's going to be Jesus. You have to think about Judas being motivated by greed, by money, right? But he still has to do something here now important. He still has to identify Jesus. Why do you have to kiss Jesus? Not because he said, this is, I, I just want to greet Jesus. He's saying, whoever I kiss, that's Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is, is, is so humble. He's so simple. Jesus is not trying to be extravagant. He's not trying to be like, look at me. His entire ministry, Jesus was doing miracles. And he was just slipping away and meeting needs. Then when it came to Gethsemane, he had to be identified. <laughs> because they wouldn't have known who Jesus was. <laughs> unless Judas went and kissed them. Think about how simple and humble Jesus is. I think sometimes we try to raise a banner for ourselves like, look at me, what I'm doing. Look at all the accolades. Look at all the compliments. Jesus said, you know what? They don't even know who I am and I'm doing all these miracles. Judas had to come and kiss them so they would know who Jesus was. And then look what happens here now because now you see the consequences of prayerlessness from Peter. I want you to pay attention to Peter's life because he didn't pray. Pay attention to what Jesus does because he did pray, but then also Peter, what happens because he didn't pray. And it said here, verse 49, Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. But Jesus said, Friend, why have you come? He still calls him friend. And it says here, Then he came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew the sword and struck the servant, the high priest, and he cut off his ear. Now, we know that here it doesn't give us a name, but between the disciples, man, these guys, there's a lot of bit, a little spirit of competition between them always. So Luke said, you know what? I wasn't a disciple, but John was, and he was there. He said, I'm going to say it was Peter, because it was Peter. I know it was him. <laughs> and in John chapter 18, verse 10, John straight up writes down, it was Peter. You know, Luke didn't want to say who it was, but I'll tell you guys, it was Peter, the one that did this. What does Peter do? Peter gets emotional. Peter gets carnal. Peter gets in the flesh. Because he thinks he needs to pull out his sword to defend Jesus. Have we ever reacted that way? Try to defend Jesus? Even as the church? Even as ministry? And we end up hurting people? We end up hurting people? I think about how many times people have been hurt in the church or by the church. Because they emotionally thought they had to move with the sword and hurt someone. Unintentionally or intentionally. Not knowing what they were doing. Because they were emotional. They weren't praying. And what does Peter do? He retaliates now and he reacts in the flesh and he cuts off the ear of this man. These are the consequences of a prayerless life. What happens in a prayerless life? People can get hurt because they're unprepared for spiritual warfare. If you're unprepared for spiritual warfare, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt and people are going to get hurt. And, and, and one of the biggest ministries of Christ, you know what it is? is that he goes and he starts to heal people that have been hurt by Christians. Because Christians thought they needed to use the sword to destroy and to cut and to defend Jesus. No, Jesus has to come 
And you know what he does? He heals. That's the last recorded miracle of Christ before the cross that he healed. But it says here, then Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place. And maybe sometimes God is telling us, put your criticism away, put your judgmental mindset away. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. With that same hand that you're dealing with that person, it's going to be dealt back with you, Peter. Put that sword away. There's, not, there's a time for the sword, but it's not against your, this person right here. Put away the sword. If the father wanted, he, he could have protected himself. He says, or do you not think that I can now pray to my father and he will provide with me more than 12 legions of angels? Do you not think that I can have an army of angels right now if I wanted to, to protect me? But what was he doing? He was allowing himself to be able to step into the scriptures now and fulfill now the will of the Father. How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? How is the scripture going to be fulfilled if I don't turn myself in, if you try to defend me? You don't have to try to defend me. It's just like you don't have to try to defend the Bible sometimes. The Bible is like a lion. If you, I mean, if you take a lion, open that cage above the lion, you think you don't have to defend the lion? <laughs> the lion will defend itself. And the word of God will defend itself. You don't have to try to emotionally help. Look what Peter does, though. You see here now, Jesus is saying the scriptures are going to dictate his life. And he never wanted to be outside of the will of the Father. He's saying, this is the will of the Father, so I'm going to step right into it. Verse 55. In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. Verse 55. Verse 56, but all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. This was all done exactly the way the prophets said it would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and all the disciples fled. Forsook and fled. All the disciples, all of them, not one stayed. <laughs> Why? Because they weren't praying. You think about what happens here. Jesus is completing now the prophecy. He was fulfilling prophecy, but the disciples fled because of fear. You know why you have fear sometimes more than you have faith? Because of the lack of prayer. And your lack of prayer allows fear to dictate instead of faith to dictate. And it says in verse 56 that uh, here that all the disciples forsook and all the disciples fled. They were scared. They were running for their lives. See, your fear will lead you to forsake your primary calling, and that's to follow Jesus. But your faith will keep you right there close to Him because you've been praying. It says here now in verse 57, And those who had laid hold of Jesus led Him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Now they had given Jesus six trials. Out of all six trials, there was this one in particular that was illegal to try someone overnight. But it says here now that they assembled together ready to receive Jesus to try Him now. And it says in verse 58, But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. And he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. What does Peter do? He wasn't praying. He was emotional, first number one. And he follows Christ at a distance. When you're not praying, guess what you're doing? You're following Jesus, but it's at a distance. Oh Lord, I want to follow you, but I'm going to follow you at a distance. And you start to create space between you and Jesus. And the more space that you create, the weaker spiritually you are. And it all started at Gethsemane. Sleeping instead of praying. The consequences of cutting the man's ear off. The consequences of now following Jesus at a distance and creating space, which inevitably created, weak, created now a weakness spiritually him. And what does he want to do now? Peter wants to be involved, but he wants to be involved at a distance now. Prayer is so that we can follow Jesus up close. Prayer is so that we can follow Jesus up intimate. Prayer is so that we can follow Jesus personally, not at a distance. And when we follow Him at a distance, that you know what we also do with that space? You open yourself up to compromise. You're following Him at a distance, then you start to allow little compromise to come into your life. And it allows you to go into denial. You have inevitably denied the Lord. It says here, verse 58, now let's read. And he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Here, when he sits in, in Luke, it tells us that Peter was cold. 
So he goes into the courtyard here where they're about to try Jesus and he sits around the fire or the bonfire that they have during the night to warm himself in the fire of the accusers of Jesus. What is he doing now, Peter? He is now cold, both spiritually now and physically, and he's warming himself or he's getting comfortable in the same place of the accusers of Jesus. Have you ever tried to get comfortable among the accusers of Christ? I know that they are the accusers of Christ, but I want to get comfortable right now. I want to blend in right now. I want to be around Jesus, but I'm going to be around Jesus in this way. or with, I'm going to identify with Him in this manner. And he starts to get comfortable around the fire. I want you to know in Peter's life, there was Peter before the fire, there was Peter now under the fire, and then there's Peter after the fire. And look what it happens here in verse 59 as we read. It says here, Now the chief priests, the elders, and the encounters sought false testimony against Jesus so they could put him to death. They had no reason because Jesus was innocent. And we saw that Pilate over and over again. And Friday we're going to see that he tried to give him up because he was innocent, right? And it said here now in verse 60, and he found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. In verse 61. And it says, And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you not answer nothing? What is these? Is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. I think that's something that we have to learn. Silence. Silence. Even when you're being accused. We were being, every time we were being accused, guess what we want to do? We want to open our mouth. And we start to try to defend ourselves. Jesus kept silent when he was being accused. Why? Because he knew that he was in God's will. He knew that he wasn't going to try to defend himself. He knew that he was protected already. And he said, this man said that he was going to destroy the temple in three days. You know, raise it back up. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under an oath by the living God now. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. What did Jesus mean when he said that in three days he was going to rise the temple again? He was talking about the future resurrection and victory over death after three days that he would be risen again. And in verse here, 64, it says, Jesus said to him now that after he's under an oath publicly. And now he publicly declares that he is the Messiah, to them. In words, he says, It is as you say, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You're going to see now the Son of Man coming, you know, with the cloud uh, in, and power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's saying, yes, I am. I'm going to sit in the place of authority. I'm going to sit in the place of the throne with the Father. And the high priest tore his clothes. See, the high priests were never to tear their clothes. For only one exception were they able to tear their clothes, and that was blasphemy. And they thought that what Jesus was saying was, was blasphemy or was speaking against now uh, the Lord and God and His Word. And he, they tore his clothes saying, Has he spoken blasphemy? What further need do we have of any witnesses? Look now, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, is he, he is deserving of death. And they spat in his face and they beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands. And saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? Think about how he was mocked and ridiculed. And he didn't do anything. He wasn't deserving of death. We were. He was ridiculed. He was mocked. He was insulted unjustly. And they were saying, if you are the Christ, and blindfolded him and beat him and said, all right, let's tell who punched you then if you really are the Christ? He didn't try to defend himself. And it says here in verse 69, Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. He said, Hey, wait a minute. Peter, aren't you, weren't you with Jesus of Galilee as well? Aren't you a believer? And look what Peter does now, because he's going to start to compromise now. And he's going to really deny the Lord. He enters into temptation. Do you remember in the garden, what did Jesus say? Prepare yourself so you don't enter into temptation. He is going to enter now into temptation now because he's spiritually unfit for the test. But when it comes to the test, you're either going to be cowardly or you're going to be courageous. Are you going to deny him or are you going to profess him? And he said that they recognized him and he said, but he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you're saying. I'm no. He's denying him now. I'm not, there's no way. I'm, he's failing the test here now, Peter. 
There's no way that, that I can possibly be one associated with Jesus Christ. And when he had gone out to the gateway. So where was he in the courtyard first? Notice what happens here. And I, I love these parts because it t speaks about a setting. It says that he was in a courtyard, but verse here, 71 says that he had gone out to the gateway. He went from the courtyard into out the gateway. He went out and he started to take steps back. And he, you know what he was doing? He was right, right here. He was trying to walk away from the test. He was trying to walk away from the uncomfortable question, from answering the hard question. You know why? There was no power because there was no prayer. And when there's no prayer, there's not going to be any power. There's going to be fear instead of faith now. And, and he goes now to the gateway because he's leaving the pressure. Oh, I'm going to leave the pressure of having to be a Christian. I'm going to leave the pressure of having those hard questions asked to me. And he, he didn't want to be embarrassed by having to say, yes, I am. Or, or know what the consequences would be. And he denied him here. It says here again in verse 71. And another girl saw him. If it's not one person, then another person will recognize you. And he said to them, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied him with an oath. I do not know the man. He now he even raised his hand and he started to, to, to swear. I don't know the man. You know what this teaches us? He denied him three times. We know that. But each time it was easier to deny Jesus. Because once you deny Jesus once, and then you start taking steps back to the gateway, then you, it's easier for you to deny him the second time. And then it's easier for you to deny him the second, the third time. To the point where you followed him so much at a distance, you're constantly living a life of denial when it comes to obedience and following the Lord. And look what happens here. He's, he started to compromise every single time. And in verse 23, a little later, those who stood by Peter came to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. And look what they say. Now your speech betrays you. You have a Galilean accent. What are you talking about? You're not with Jesus. You sound just like Jesus. You have his accent. You talk just like one of them. Of course you are a follower of Jesus. Hey, you, you're giving it away by the way you talk. <laughs> and look what happens here. This is interesting that they recognize him because of his speech. And it says, but he denied him. It says here, verse 71, and he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. You know what he was doing? He started to cuss. You know why? Because he wanted to convince them that he wasn't a follower of Jesus. Peter here was looking to identify himself more with the world by cursing than identifying himself more than with Jesus by professing that he was a follower. Every small compromise led to this huge denial. And instead of wanting to be close to Jesus, he wanted to be close to the world and he started to curse. He started to curse. He started to say, you know what? I, in fact, I don't talk like a Galilean. I talk just like the world. I'm not, I don't talk like Jesus. I talk just like the world. And it says in verse 74, it says, here, immediately the rooster crowed. Think about the regret that he felt right away. It didn't take a while for him to feel the regret. He felt the regret right away. And it says in verse 75, and Peter here, I, I want you to underline this piece here. Because as he remembered the words of Jesus. You know what happened here? He paused for a moment and he remembered the words. It's interesting that it says he remembered. When you remember something, what has to take place for you to remember it? You have to forget it. <laughs> and the only reason here that he denied Jesus was because he forgot the words of Jesus. Because he was in praying and meditating and remembering the words and sitting in the words that Jesus warned Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me, Peter. Peter, stay and watch awake. Stay praying, Peter. Watch, Peter. You couldn't pray, Peter. And he forgot the words. You see, what leads us into compromise is that we forget the words. That we don't stay close to the words. That we don't stay close to prayer. And the rooster crowed, and he knew and he wept bitterly, repentant, broken, that he denied Jesus. It said here now, he remembered Jesus saying, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and he wept bitterly. That word bitter means that it was, it was filled with regret. Think about how you feel betraying Jesus straight in the face. 
And I think that sometimes that can be us. We betray Jesus, we deny Jesus. When he's invited us to pray at Gethsemane and saying, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And look what Peter does, he betrays him. There are three phases that we learned today. Not only did we learn a lot about Christ, but also about Peter. Peter was self-confident. He had trust in self. He had a heart that felt that he had it all together. And he's known for that throughout the Gospels, that he's very impulsive and emotional, even before Gethsemane or before that time where he was in the fire or close to the fire. And the three areas or phases of Peter's life and ministry are number one, before the fire, number two, under the fire, and number three, on fire. Because first, G Peter was, before the fire, he was emotional, he was very impulsive. After he was under the fire, right, when he was there warming himself and being tested, he betrayed under the fire, he backslid under the fire. But number three, after the fire, he was on fire. And that was in John chapter 21, when Jesus looks at Peter, and, and he says, you know what, I'm going to restore you, Peter. And I'm going to recommission you, Peter, even though you forsook me. Peter, even though you betrayed me. Lord Peter, even though you denied me, even though you messed up, Peter, I'm going to restore you, Peter, and I'm going to recommission you. And you know what? You messed up bad, but you can be used again. You messed up bad, but you can be used again. In John 21, Peter, feed my sheep. Man, that's amazing. That's the Jesus that goes into Gethsemane. The Jesus that looks at you and says, you know what? I know you messed up, but you know what? You can be used again. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Then Peter, feed my sheep. And maybe that's what God wants to tell us today. Do you love me? I know you've messed up, but you can be used again. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you went to the cross. Lord, if it wasn't for the cross, we would have never known those words in John 21 where you told Peter, Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. We thank you for the anointing and the fellowship that we get at Gethsemane. We thank you, Lord, that because even in the heat of being under fire, we've betrayed you, Lord. We try to be cool like the world. We try to fit in. And we betray our convictions. We betray our obedience. We betray your will to try to fit in. And although we feel remorseful, God, and we weep bitterly, Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. After the tomb and after you conquered death and sin, you forgave us and you said you can be used again. Feed my sheep. I thank you, Lord, because prayer is the preparation that takes place to guard us against temptation. I pray, Lord, that we would guard ourselves against denial. That we would guard ourselves against denial that comes through spiritual warfare. In Jesus' name we pray and together we say.